Coming to you live. Live. And podcasting around the globe. You're listening to the Deal Farm Podcast. Guaranteed to tickle your real estate loving ear holes. And now, here's your host, world-renowned TV heartthrob and investor extraordinaire, Ken Corsini. Hey yep. folks, this is Ken Corsini with the Best Deal Ever Show, and I am joined by Brent Underwood. Brent, how you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Awesome, man. Glad to have you. This is our first time meeting. You're in Austin, is that right? Austin, Texas. Yep, that's correct. Austin, Texas. The, man, the city that is booming right now, right? It's growing fast. I mean, I'm looking out my window and I see three cranes. You know, they say that the state bird of Texas is the crane right now, you know, for all the building that's oh, going on. And, <laughs> and I believe it. I could see that. You know, it's funny. I'm actually going in front of a city council today in Woodstock, Georgia to pitch a food truck park. And all of my pictures and all of my data is Austin because you guys are like known for food trucks, right? Yeah, I believe it. I mean, again, I'm looking at my window and I see four or five different food trucks. It's it's definitely like uh, the popular thing here. And it's been interesting too to see the kind of like the food trucks to, to physical brick and mortar transition, you know, yeah. a popular food truck will become a physical location and it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Oh, that's interesting. So a food truck gets really popular in a certain spot and you're seeing it become an actual yeah. kind of brick and mortar. It's kind of like the minimum viable product, if you will, you know, for a restaurant where they'll get a food truck. The permit's a lot easier uh, in Austin, at least. I don't know in Georgia right now, but yeah. uh, permit's a little bit easier. It starts working and then they move into a brick and mortar. Interesting. Well, it's been obviously super successful and it's sort of starting to expand around the country. I mean, you guys sort of seem yeah. like ground zero for that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's every day. It seems like a new one's coming and going and moving around. And, uh, you know, as a, as a resident, I, I get a benefit from that because there's a lot of great food. A lot of good food. You're definitely <laughs> in a foodie town. Now yeah. you were, uh, tell me about your background real fast. You were in real estate in terms of schooling, right? Yeah. I grew up in Tampa, Florida. I went to school for real estate at Florida State University up in Tallahassee. And oh, I yeah. studied real estate while I was there. And I worked at a property management company at the time, you know, just mm-hmm. as a leasing agent, I think at like a bigger property. And then I graduated, uh, wanted to move to New York City. So I, I moved to New York City and I worked for a commercial real estate broker there. And I was kind of like his research analyst. And this is a guy that was doing like $350 million a year in sales. So he, it was right into the big time. And without you know, diving in too much, like he very quickly got sued for fraud and a variety of reasons. Uh-huh. And I was 21 and I started getting questioned by lawyers and all this type of stuff. And I figured, you know what? Uh, I'm going to take a little break. So I, I quit and I traveled a while. I traveled for about six months. Uh, I came back. I still want to work in real estate. So I applied to Columbia uh, and I got into Columbia University for real estate and then and finance as well. And then I graduated, worked at a real estate investment bank for about a month. I think I made it. You know, this was 2010. So we were packaging non-performing loans, which... Good times. Yeah, not yeah, yeah. So <laughs> we would fly, you know, see these non-performing loans, package them, and then quit that, traveled again, um, came back, and I still kind of miss this travel thing. It was kind of like an ongoing theme. Is I would, whenever I would take a break for something, I would go and travel and stay in all these hostels. So coming back to New York, I missed that that atmosphere and that like camaraderie that happens in a hostel and that excitement. And I was still I was twenty two, twenty three, and so I, I decided to try to start a hostel in Brooklyn, New York. And just because I think at the time there wasn't too many hostel options in Brooklyn and, you know, from a variety of ways, pulling money together from credit cards and family and friends, uh, I started a hostel in Brooklyn and wow. we leased, we, yeah, it was fun. We leased the building. And so this was like, uh, my original goal was just to be able to live in New York city for free. So I thought, 
you know, if I start this hostel and I have a room and the rest of it pays for itself, that's a win and I can figure out what I want to do. That's but the ultimate they, house hack. Yeah. Create yeah, a hostel yeah. that you can live in. Well, because most people, when they talk about like house hacking, like you can rent out one room. New York City is expensive. You need to have a hostel to support your That's room right. in New York City. And so, uh, yeah, it, it was kind of, this was 2012 probably. And uh-huh. so Air, Airbnb was just kind of starting to really become popular. And so we were pretty early on on Airbnb in New York. And so that really helped. And, uh, that ran for about four years in, in New York, uh, three or four, and it was leased building. And the time that the lease started and lease ended, the area becomes significantly more desirable, I guess. And yeah. so the lease rate was going to jump four x, and like the the math didn't make sense anymore to be a hostel. Yeah. And in that time, I started working with a lot of authors. I kind of do this marketing, and I help them craft their ideas and their their stories, and kind of get more attention for their books. And that was going well, better. And an author I was working for lived in Austin, Texas, uh, a guy by the name of Tucker Max, who some people might know, some people might not. And he's like, you know, forget New York, come visit Austin. It's a great town. And I came and Austin got me like, they get a lot of people like, it was South by Southwest, which is a yeah. big festival. Yeah. And I came and I was like, wow, this is the coolest town I've ever been to. You know, there's so much to go. There's free stuff here, there. Uh, so I moved to Austin and was just doing the marketing, but still had that itch for real estate. And so... I was walking down the street one day and I saw this Victorian mansion uh, on Cesar Chavez, kind of one of the main thoroughfares in Austin. And it was in East Austin, which at the time was a, you know, undergoing transition. And, uh, you know, I, that night I couldn't sleep as many people do thinking about this building, thinking about hostels, thinking about traveling, still not, I still hadn't fully satisfied that hostelage. So, uh, ended up, you know, getting, getting it going again, started a hostel in Austin. Um, we released that building to begin with and, the permitting process was pretty, pretty intense, which is something that, you know, sure. you fire code and all that and opened that hostel about five years ago, I think. And we purchased the building two years afterwards. It was doing well enough where we decided to purchase it. Um, so did that. And then since then with the marketing stuff, it, it allows me some freedom to kind of do other deals. So I've done a number of kind of like purchases in, in, in Austin and around Austin, whether it's like a, a purchase and flip or a, a long-term hold. And then also being in Austin, I think that the San Antonio market's pretty interesting. And so I've purchased a number of places down in San Antonio, like a commercial triplex and some different stuff. Um, just cause I, again, like I love real estate. It's, it's something that like the tangible factor really sure. appeals to me just cause like I work so much online that being able to leave my computer and walk into a building that you own and turned into something is very rewarding. Sure. Yeah. And so that was that. And then about a a year ago, um, I was looking for a larger hospitality project to do with my friend, John. And, you know, the hostel was doing pretty good. And I found that like the building that we were in was this historic building. It was built in 1893. And so I was looking for another building where we could combine uh, history with hospitality. Cause I just think that like, if you can tell a story about anything, you know, like as, as most people know, like, everything is storytelling. And so if you can tell a story about the property, then the property becomes more interesting. You get more guests. You know, people want to stay in our hostel because it's a piece of Austin history. You know, it's something that these people, this lineage of great people have stayed in. And so we started looking for property and we were looking for a hospitality destination within two to three hours of a major city that Mm -hmm. was probably at least 50 acres because we wanted some room to expand and do some cool, like, you know, new structures on it. Um, and so we were looking at the Catskills a lot, you know, like two hours outside of New York city. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that area is obviously blowing up. I think that it'll continue to become 
a great destination because it was in the past and it will in the future. So we, we actually found a hotel up there that hadn't been doing good. You know, it was already ready to go. And we put an offer in on that property. Um, we put an offer in for, I believe, like 1.5 for this beautiful, stunning lodge in the middle of the Catskills. Wow. Uh, operational already, turnkey almost. So our job would just be to do marketing. And it's like, as a marketer, and John, my business partner, is, is a marketer as well, we thought we could buy this and turn it into something. And literally, as we were waiting for a response from this offer that we put in, a buddy of mine that lives in Los Angeles texted me this link. And he was like, guys, or he's like, Brent, you got to take a look at this. And it was three o'clock in the morning when he texted to me. So I didn't look until the morning. And when I looked, it was this 400 acre former mining town that was in California. And it was just, it was crazy. Like I can't even wrap my head around it. There's 22 structures on the property. Uh, it was formerly the largest producer of silver for the state of California. Um, and it was, it was originally marketed for $925,000. And I was oh my like, gosh. Yeah, for, coming from New York and major cities, I thought, you know, you can't even get an apartment in some parts of New York for that. Um, and so the next morning I called the broker. I was like, hey, my name is Brennan Arroyo. And I kind of explained the story. And he says, and he goes, well, that's great. But, you know, get in line. We've had over 100 offers in the past day for this property. Uh, wow. It just started getting a little bit of press, the listing itself. Because yeah. the I think the agent was really smart. He listed it for just under a million. So the headlines were like, buy a town for under a million dollars. I think I saw that. Probably. It was a handful, just a couple of years ago. It was I about... It was about a year and a half ago. Yeah. Yes. No, I yeah. remember seeing those. Exactly. So it, was, it became, it started getting everywhere. And like, it wasn't everywhere when we first put our offer, but then every article that I saw come out about it, I was a bit angry because, you know, I knew that our competition would be more and more. Oh yeah. Um, and so it started off at 925 and then we ended up, you know, it's going back and forth again, more and more press. So finally I told him, I was like, listen, we'll do $1.4 million. We'll close in a week, all cash. Um, this is a very serious offer. And then he's like, you know, as, as most people do, he's like, well, that sounds great, but, uh, send me proof of funds. <laughs> and I was like, oh, all right. Um, and send me, yeah, exactly. So as somebody who didn't have $1.4 million, uh, just liquid in my account, uh, we had to pull some strings, let's say to, to make that appear like that was the case. Um, and we wired him 50 grand of earnest money, non-refundable, this is before even flying out there. This was just right, on so a nobody hunch. nobody had even seen this yet. Nobody had gone out there yet. This was all happening. I was in Austin, Texas. I was on the phone every day. I was calling everybody that I thought might get excited about it. John was getting excited about it. So John was calling his, how we started raising money, you know, was to call through our client list. You know, we had built up this goodwill with our clients over the years. And so it was just like, you know, we, we're going to need to raise this and we're going to need to raise this in seven days, all cash. So it's kind of be, the timeline was on. So we wired him 50 grand. I flew out that day. Uh, we went to the property finally. Luckily, the property was even more stunning than I could believe. It was one of these places where I'm pretty good at hyping things up as, as my job. Like I hype things up. Like It's impossible to overhype Cerro Gordo just because it's that stunning when you get there. And we got there. That's the name of the town. And it was beautiful. And you know everything felt right with the owners. And then so John and I had seven days to raise the 1.4. Uh, it was a week of picking up the phone and calling and convincing and uh, selling this dream of owning a town uh, to people. And it, it was a bit risky because like we were taking funds from clients in our marketing business. So obviously if the deal went wrong, it would affect our other businesses totally. and, the other, and the other businesses are the ones that pay our bills. Um, but final hour uh, as marketers too, we, we it, there was 
July 13th was the date we wanted to close on. And July 13th was going to be Friday the 13th. So like nice. ghost town, Friday the 13th. Good timing. Like funny. Yeah. yeah. And so we, 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 we got it done final hour. We were driving out there, even not knowing if we were going to close or not, but just confident enough that we would. And I think halfway between Los Angeles and Cerro Gordo, it's about a three hour drive. We got word from the title company that everything cleared and everything was going to go through. And so we, we arrived that day and it was just a crazy celebration because it was John's birthday as well. So it's Friday the 13th. It was John's birthday. We just bought a town. I remember there was like the ceremonial time when the brokers handed me this stack of 50 keys to all the different buildings that we had bought. Oh my and God. so it was just like, it became very real. So that night, you know, we had a bunch of friends come up and we had a great time. Um, and it's because like our main focus was like, what are we, gonna, how are we going to close? How are we going to close? How are we going to close? And then you close and it's like, Oh, now what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now what? <laughs> what uh, and so for John and I, we, we knew we were going to have to raise more money for the renovations that we were going to do. And so we just kind of went into like press overdrive. Again, that's kind of what we do each day is just kind of attract press to, to things. And we thought sure. the story was interesting. You know, these two guys buy a ghost town that they don't really know what they're doing. So they wanted to paint us as like the city slickers by this country town that you know, what are they going to do with it? Um, well, what were you thinking you were going to do with it? I mean, at the time, what was in the yeah. back of your mind? I mean, we always wanted to do this hospitality project. So we wanted to create it into some type of like destination of some type. Because I think that like, you know, as this isn't new to anybody, but like experiences are what people are looking for. And yeah. I think the pushback from the kind of cookie cutter Marriott's has been these experiential hospitality locations where people want something that's only available there. Yeah. And for better or worse, something that like, Instagram, you know, something they can Instagram and it looks cool and like, you know, it's unique and something that, you know, everybody could stay in a Marriott in 90 cities across the world and it looks pretty much the same. But this is a property that we knew was interesting. And having spent a lot of time traveling around and going to places like Marfa in Texas, which is like this artist community that popped up in the middle of the desert that they utilize like yurts and teepees and airstreams. Mm -hmm. We knew that like we could create something there, hopefully that people would come to. So the mm -hmm. idea was we'll buy this place. We'll put up some airstreams, profit, you know, and that's not necessarily the case because the town didn't have stuff like water, you know, there was no water in the town when we bought the town. Like water. Yeah. So <laughs> we, had, we started with, we started kind of like seeing all the challenges that were going to take place yeah. to getting it. Right. Um, and so we first, we first just focused on getting press because we thought sure. press would validate the idea or purchase to future investors. That was our mentality at least. Sure. And it worked out well, you know, cause like everybody wants to be part of something exciting, I think. And like, particularly in a project like this, they're not necessarily buying it. Cause I can't guarantee somebody an IRR on a ghost town. Right. I can't be like, right. you know, year two, you're getting a 17.2 IR. This is not, I was making numbers up. No, and, right. it's a and I, it's exactly. So it's more like, Hey, listen, uh, if you believe in John and I, and you believe this idea is good. We think it is a good idea because look at how it's resonating in the press. You know, we had three articles, I think, back-to-back -back months in the New York Times. And the Today Show came out and did a segment with John and I. Oh, wow. The idiots. And the Good Morning America came. And CNN came. And basically any major publication you can imagine ended up coming out to the property. And I think it's weird how the press sits in the public's mind sometimes. And so yeah. for investors that are like, well, I mean, the Today Show did something about it. If, if nothing else, the value of the property may have increased because of the exposure. For sure. Um, and so we, we closed, we, we raised some more money to do some initial renovations. And then- You raised uh, just cash up front, just a handful of individual investors. You weren't promising them returns or anything, just- Yeah, it was, even crazier than that. Like we didn't promise them returns. Uh, we didn't even give them paperwork for like six months after they wired us the money because we didn't have time. We didn't have time to like do- <laughs> That's so a lot of very much. 
this, it was a handshake and not even a handshake. Sometimes this was a text message like, Hey, I got you. Uh, and so I think that like, it was pretty, it was, it was two things. It was, it was, it was encouraging for John and I that we had that much faith in a lot of people, but also like terrifying because if this went wrong, like there's no paperwork, there's there, we're using our clients from other businesses. Like we're putting a lot of eggs in one basket that could just fail miserably. Sure. Um, and so Luckily we closed. Uh, we didn't get them paperwork for six months. It was an ongoing joke that like, Oh, we'll get you paper network next week. And that was a, that's a, that was a joke for about six months with, with our investors. And luckily these are investors that like, they're obviously our very good friends too. Yeah. Like no investor is going to be like, yeah, sure. Buy this ghost town with my money. Um, but eventually we kind of got our act together. We got the press, we raised more money and then we started figuring out what the plan was going to be. And you know, it's such a big project with 22 buildings that you have to take it like piece by piece. And so we started focusing on building on building and how can we get like some type of offering up to get feedback from people, what they might like and not like. Cause the last thing we wanted to do was spend 10 years developing this resort, then realize that like people didn't want anything that we were offering. Sure. Um, and so again, going back to Airbnb, Airbnb launched this thing called adventures. And so okay. they have regular Airbnb, which is housing and then Airbnb experiences. And they kind of combine those two into three-day destination packages where you go, you stay in these unique locations, and you get a great uh, experience outside of it. And so we partnered with the Airbnb on that to kind of get some initial feedback. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, I'm skipping a bunch of steps because we went from no water to being able to house some people. Um, but that was well, the I'm first kind of... What, I'm just curious, how much did you have to... You, you bought it for one four. How much did you have to put in it just to make it viable initially? Yeah. So just to get to the point where we could host, let's say 10 people for a weekend, we put about 600 into it and that, that not all 600 purely went into the property. Um, we started buying things like the town is at the end of a seven mile road. So you, to get off the main highway, you go up a private road that's Cerro Gordo road and it's a pretty rocky, rough road to get up to our town. But at the bottom of the mountain, there's another town called Keeler and Keeler is a, you know, they're off the main highway and all this. And so we started buying property in Keeler too as a staging area for Cerro Gordo. So people can park their cars in Keeler and then kind of we can transport them up to the town if we need to, if they come in like a low rider Porsche or something, you know, they can't get up our Rocky mountain. Sure. And right. so that 600 is divided across some prop purchases in Keeler and stuff like that. Um, but I would say 400 directly into the property itself. And the majority mm -hmm. of that went to um, water, because again, the water was a big issue. I think that was one of the reasons that we were able to purchase this property for relatively inexpensive price, you know, um, given the acreage and the history was because it didn't have any working water. And so we reintroduced separate water tanks to all the buildings. And then they have backup water tanks that supply those. Um, and just working through infrastructure like that are interesting in a project like this because sure. you want a solution that works now, but you also want a solution that will work and tap into if you develop the additional 20 buildings, you know, so right. kind of taking that step back and thinking, let's not just get the world water working now. Let's create a system that could then work to add 10 new buildings like we'd like to. Yeah. Um, so that, that was the majority of the cost and this stuff like these, these houses have been occupied since 1871 and different generations of families have owned it and they're all just left their stuff in the buildings, you know? So like so how, now how long have they been vacant? Like most of these places, some of them for years, some of them three years, because there, oh, really? there had been a family, yeah, that had privately owned it, and okay. they had they had eventually they had wanted to turn it into a bed and breakfast, basically the main hotel. There's a the American Hotel on the property was built in 1871, and they wanted to renovate that into a 
bed and breakfast and there's a saloon underneath it that's like stunning it's right out of a western there's like the flapping doors and sperm oaks in the floor wow and all that so they have been focusing on that building but they've been living in some separate buildings and when the 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 the, the people that own it died and then their sons inherited it and they didn't even go back to get the personal belongings they didn't want anything to do with it wow um and so just cleaning out the buildings took a long time you know because you have sure. You, we would walk into the the building they would be in. There would be just this terrible shag carpet, right? And we'd we'd rip up the shag carpet. Underneath the shag carpet, there would be linoleum, and then underneath the linoleum, there would be beautiful hardwood floor from about 1890. And so it was just like you could see the generations just in the flooring, and mm-hmm. so we're just stripping everything back, and then figuring out what we wanted to reintroduce into each of the buildings took a lot of time. Yeah. Um, so that that took a time and cost to. You know, it would have been cheaper. We, our contractor told us it would have been cheaper to put down brand new floors instead of renovate the floors originally. Yeah. I think the big selling point for this property and what we were trying to prove is that the history is what people are going up there for. And so we spent the money to, you know, renovate the original floors. And that's just like an example of what we've, the decision we've been making all along the way with everything at the property. Yeah. It's just restoring the original stuff as much as we can. So ha- there was a total of 40 some structures when you bought it. Is that right? Uh, 22 structures, 22 structures. And then how many were like, have you honed in on like, these are the minimum viable structures that we need. There's like six in the town core that are the overwhelmingly like that would be cash flow positive for us to renovate at this point. You know, there's a lot of kind of decrepit former cabins up on the hill that the cost of renovating versus what we can rent out for now wouldn't be a return. So we focused in on these six buildings in the main town core and that included the hotel. There's a bunkhouse where a lot of miners used to live and there's about eight rooms in the bunkhouse and it was in relatively good shape. There's a house called the Gordon mansion. One of the founders was named Gordon and he had this four bedroom, three bath house that we renovated um, to bring it up. And then we had three other kind of houses around the property and then our goal was to make them comfortable enough for at least we could have friends and family up for the weekend to test out the space and see what they liked and what they didn't like. Um, and along the way, because of the press going into that, like we were able to get some interesting partnerships like Casper Mattresses gave us a bunch of mattresses because they knew we were going to be on the Today Show. So they oh, gave yeah, us some smart. mattresses. Um, and so we've now have a point where like we could comfortably pull it, I would say 15 up there. Um, it's not... The, the hospital, the, it's not to where we want to be, obviously, but mm-hmm. it's to a point where it's comfortable, at least, you know, you can take a shower, you can wash your hands, things that might seem very basic to many, but when you come from not being able to wash your hands for six months, it's, it's a big win. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, and so you've still, so you bought it for one four, you've put in, you still kind of sitting at that 600 in terms of rehab or have yep. you put more in there since then? No, we're still sitting out right there. Okay. That's not bad. So, I mean, two million, still $2 million. Yeah. You've got a friggin' town yeah. a, with six structures, including a hotel and a mansion. I mean, that's, this is phenomenal. Yeah. And, and I think at this point too, it's, it's, it's starting to show some type of cash flow each month. So we went from a property that was vacant of, of any people and also of any cash flow. You know, there's no way to produce income. And we've brought it to a point that is producing income. And I think that's the hardest first step is making some income coming from it. Yeah. Now we can tweak our offering and change it and continue to improve. But at least we know that like people like it up there. You know, people are enjoying their time up there. Um, and so for us, it was pretty validating. And the reason we stopped putting in more money is because we wanted to prove the model a little bit and then go back out and raise it a different valuation to be yeah. fully transparent. You know, so sure. it's like more like the initial investors, it was very risky. It was a town with like literal tumbleweeds rolling through it and nobody going up there to now it's a town that 
can produce an income and is happening. And so we stop that round uh, and then are raise and then repackaging it for the ne- for the next round of investment. So all the investors that got in early, just uh, just to clarify how you structured, are they just all equity partners in the deal? They're they're all equity partners. We except for one. We had one that wanted to do short term debt instead of equity, and okay. so we had one guy that would wasn't fully bullish. Um, so majority equity partners, and then some uh, short term debt. Okay. I'm sure the guys that went equity are probably patting themselves in the back. They, they're yeah. glad they took the risk, right? Yeah, they're excited. And like, also, I think it's been cool because we don't have that many investors. We have like six total or seven. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, and so it's kind of been a reason for a lot of them to get to know each other. We had a first investor weekend up there two weekends or no, about a month ago now mm-hmm. where everybody got to come up and meet each other. And we were choosing investors. We, we turned down a lot of money from different people. We tried to create people that, I mean, like everybody says, that had a value add outside of the, just the funds. Yeah. So we have like, big restaurateurs, we have UFC fighters, we have uh, entrepreneurs, authors, musicians. And so we have all these different pools of people. And so just to get them up there together and have a fun weekend is something that we want to kind of continue to have. Because again, it's, it's like a playground right now. It's this town that nobody's in. And so they get intangible benefits outside of just the financial return. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's, there's something to be said about that as well. Oh, for sure. So, uh, so a couple questions. Do you have any idea on what's, what it's worth now? I mean, how much have you increased the value of the place? Yeah. So, I mean, like even prior to us starting the Airbnb Ventures, we had offers over $3 million for the property. And so to think wow. like, so in my mind, like what has changed since we bought it and since we got that offer? And the only thing that's really changed is we introduced water, which is a big thing, but at the same time, the press, I think, is the main driver of that. And as a marketer, it's interesting because sometimes when you market books, you get press, but there's no direct ROI. You can't see the direct ROI of raising the profile of something necessarily. Right. But in my mind, at least, this went from a property for 1.4 to almost to more than double what we paid for it because of the exposure that came from it. And I think that's interesting. It's definitely turned the lens that I viewed properties at. I don't think every property you can, obviously every property the New York Times doesn't want to come in profile, but I think that like if you can find properties that do have a bit of history in them, then spending some time to like bring that history to the, to the surface, even if it's with, with a local blog that covers East Austin real estate, you know, some type of public mm-hmm. profile seems to sit with investors and maybe potential purchasers in a certain way. So I think that like as maybe some other people are going through projects thinking, how could I get a bit of press attention to this? Um, and I know that's not, maybe not the initial gut reaction to the people, but like I would argue that Sarah Gordo proves that there is a direct ROI in press. And so maybe sure. spending a bit more time on the projects to kind of work around that would be something. That's a real, I mean, it's funny. We've, we've, I've done a handful of these and we've never extracted any principle around lean on, you know, obtaining exposure through press. But this is the perfect example of that. You, you're working on a historic house of any sort yeah. I mean, what can people do? What, what, what can they do to obtain press and exposure for a project that would potentially enhance the value of the property? I always like to think like with press, people think, people hear like New York Times and they think that's where I want to be. But like, that's not the right way to think about it. I think whenever I'm thinking about press, we, we, I see it as like my business partner, Ryan, and I think about it as like trading up the chain. It's like, what's a small local thing that you can get on that will then leverage up the story to other blogs. So I'll give you an example with Cerro Gordo. When, when we purchased Cerro Gordo, I didn't write to the New York times and I wasn't like, Hey, we bought this ghost town. You should cover it. Uh, I reached out to the real deal Los Angeles. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a real estate focused uh, publication in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Hey, uh, my name is Brent. 
my, some partners and I just bought this ghost town. We closed on Friday the 13th. It might be interesting to you. Pretty simple email to like one of their writers. And the real deal wrote a really short piece about it. It was maybe 200 words. But as soon as you have that piece in the real deal, I took that link and I sent it to Business Insider, you know, a little bit bigger blog. And then Business Insider saw that this story was resonating with some demographic. And then they wrote something about it. Then I took the Business Insider link and I sent it to Entrepreneur Magazine because I thought, you know, maybe they'd be interested. And so then Entrepreneur Magazine writes about it. And then each time along the way, I'm hopefully providing a little bit more insight to what we're doing up there. And then eventually, you know, Entrepreneur leads to CNN. CNN leads to the New York Times. And so when I'm thinking about press, if we're going to re rewind it to what you said, like let's say you're renovating a building uh, in East Nashville. We'll pick a town that I have nothing to do with. And you're, you, it's a historic property. Um, I would say spend a little bit of time down at a local place, find out maybe some interesting history about the property, mm -hmm. see if there's a Nashville real estate blog. I'm sure there is even like a East Nashville neighborhood blog and just reach out to them and say, listen, you know, this building was up for demolition. I'm just making stuff up. This building is up for demolition. Uh, this is a really important building because blah, blah, blah lived here in this year. And he ended up being, you know, the first merchant to do this in Nashville. And so to me, it's really important to preserve the history here. So this is what I'm doing. Um, and see if you can get something local. And then if it hits local, just think about a little bit bigger. Maybe then there's a Tennessee real estate blog you can write to, and then maybe they'd be interested. So send it to them and say, Hey, you know, this is my property that I'm working on. Uh, eastnashville.com just wrote about it. I thought you might be interested. Um, my name is blah, blah, blah. Uh, I'd love to talk about it more if you think so. Um, and there's kind of like keep thinking about stuff like that. And I think that when you bring it down to the local level or smaller level, that is really interesting. And, and if, if if it's not a historic property, I know that would be the counterpoint. Like, well, I don't have history on property. Then there's websites like, you know, bigger pockets. There's a variety of real estate websites that right. if you're willing to do the work to outline what you're doing in the property and so other people can learn from it, maybe somebody's willing to write about it. Um, so that's, that's kind of how I think about it, press. And you, I mean, really when it's all said and done, you, you manufactured so much of this interest behind the scenes and, and, the, and exposure in the press and in, and in the process, doubled the value of this property. Realistically. Yeah, I, I think so. And like, I think, uh, it seems like things just happen or things just go viral sometimes, but like they didn't see, like I emailed that initial real deal link out to probably 40 different, uh, publications, whether wow. it's business insider and different stuff. And so like, I'm just behind the scenes pitching tons of different people. And these aren't people that I know people. I think people might think like, Oh, he works in press. So he knows these people. I didn't know a single person that wrote about Cerro Gordo before they wrote Cerro Gordo. Wow. And so I think that like, if you're thinking about press, it's like, I just Googled, like, I thought about other interesting properties that had closed, and I Googled those high-profile properties that had closed, and then I saw what outlets wrote about them and what reporters wrote about them, and then I just created a spreadsheet, and I wrote their email and their name and their outlet, and I just went down the list, and I just pitched them, 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 and so if I pulled up my email, you'd see probably on, we closed on July 13th, on July 14th, you probably see 50 emails with the headline, Ghost Town closes on Friday the 13th, question mark, or something like that, and I just pitched... 50 of them. And let's say if 15 of them hit, then you take those links and you send them to 15 more people. Um, and then eventually you get to the point where like it's critical mass and the ball is rolling. And so like now we're known as like a ghost town that's under renovation. So we don't, we get pressed now without pitching it, if that makes sense, because sure. it's like a oh, known yeah. commodity. Right. And so like, uh, we'll, I'll, I have a Google alert set up for Sarah Gordo. So I'll see a Google alert from various websites that, because of that initial effort that went into it, it kind of like self-sustains even over a year later.
That's amazing. And that's, I mean, honestly, what you just gave us is almost a lesson in marketing and, and even, or potentially branding yourself. I and mean, obviously this is what you do for a living, but the fact that you transfer that skill set to real estate, I think there's yeah. tons of application for us. For yeah, I think that, real estate investors. I think that's the thing. I think that we, as full-time real estate investors, like if you want to grow your profile, so, and listen, some people don't want to grow their profile. They want to be the quiet billionaire that owns, you know, a thousand trailer parks or whatever, which is awesome. Um, but if you, I think by raising your profile, there's a couple of benefits. One, we now get deal flow. People will send us weird real estate projects. They're like, you guys are the guys that bought the ghost town. Do you want to buy my lighthouse in Maine? I'm like, maybe, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. Let me call my friends. <laughs> yeah. And so I think that like, uh, there's like benefits there to raising your profile. And so I think that using the same things can, can be applied. hundred percent. Um, Brent, this was, I'll be honest, this might be the most unique best, uh, best deal ever we've done, but also maybe one of the most interesting. So for all you folks that are listening that want to buy a ghost town, <laughs> go back and listen up. to this. <laughs> Brent's the venture guy. No, yeah. seriously, this was really, really interesting. I hey, at some point in time, I might be knocking your door to come visit a ghost town. I think that'd be hey, the, really the ghost cool. Ghost town's always open. If anybody wants to visit, we, we, so we have uh, a caretaker named Robert that's lived on the property for 21 years. Of course, you know, he's a former miner and he gives tours every day. So if anybody wants to come and visit oh, wow. Stro Gordo, it's always open uh, and it's a lot of fun. That's very cool. We'll put up some pictures too and some links in the video so people have all that if they have an interest in checking out. I'm sure they will because I'm super interested. I think it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, come out anytime. Awesome. Brent, thanks so much for this, man. This was awesome. Thank you. All right, take care. Hey, Deal Farm listeners. If you haven't heard, I just recently released a book through Bigger Pockets Publishing called Profit Like the Pros. If you dig the Best Deal Ever podcasts, you will definitely want to get your hands on this book. I take 25 stories from some of the top investors in the country and distill them down into 25 separate chapters that will not only entertain you, but educate and inspire you in all different facets of real estate investing. From wholesaling and flipping to self-storage, multifamily and commercial, we get into the details of short sales, subject twos, and even land flipping. And whether you're a brand new investor or you have years of experience under your belt, I promise you this book will engage you. If you would, take a minute, go to Amazon and order this book, Profit Like the Pros. And if you like it, please leave us a review. Thanks so much, folks, and I will see you on the next episode of The Deal Farm.